Last day of vacation and you're at the spa because you're an American Express Platinum card member and booked your fine hotel and resort stay through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The Bering Strait. These 51 miles of frigid water dotted with icebergs separate the easternmost tip of Russia from the westernmost tip of Alaska. The water forms a barrier between the two continents that today cannot be overcome without a ship. But that water wasn't always there, and the Bering Strait was not always a strait. During the last glacial maximum, the epoch when the seas were lowest, it was a body of land, Beringia. The story of Beringia is one of survival and triumph against the odds. The people who made the crossing defied vast ice sheets and broke through into a new and untamed land. They hunted massive mammoths, saber-toothed cats, and other extinct megafauna that modern Americans would not even recognize. They conquered two continents in less than a thousand years. Their descendants would someday independently invent agriculture and domesticate dozens of animals and crops. Some of their progeny would even invent writing, an innovation so profound, it only occurred two or perhaps three times in history. Later still, these inheritors would repulse or absorb attempted attacks from great seafaring conquerors, from the Vikings to possibly even the Polynesians. By then, their cultures will have changed, adapting to the unique environments in which each group of settlers found themselves. But at the beginning, these were one people. Who were they? Why did these people enter Beringia? And what led them into the interior of the Americas? What made their culture so durable that it spread from Atlantic to Pacific, from Greenland to the Tierra del Fuego in Argentina? And were they actually the first settlers in this new land? Or did they outcompete or absorb earlier arrivals? What should we make of the settlements we've found which do not look like the work of these pioneers? Who were the Clovis people? And more importantly, who did they become? In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. This is our first episode on the mystery of the Clovis people. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. In part one, we'll follow the hypothetical journey of the Clovis people from Central Asia to the Americas and the impact their arrival had on these undiscovered continents. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. The story of the Clovis people is told secondhand. Though their Olmec descendants eventually developed writing, for more than 10,000 years, neither they nor their descendant cultures had any written histories. 
We don't know what they called themselves or what they called their hundreds of separate settlements. From archaeological discoveries that began in 1929 outside of Clovis, New Mexico, we know many of these settlements were linked by trade, but we know less about how they were politically organized. We know they came to the Americas about 13,500 years ago and that they spread all throughout North, South, and Central America. We know what kinds of craftsmen they were from the first archaeological dig in 1932 and all those that followed. We know about the spearheads they carved, the pottery they sculpted. We know that they appear to have given way to other cultures and traditions about 13,000 years ago. And we know some facts about who they were related to from DNA and mitochondrial DNA studies. Tenuously, there are some oral histories passed down amongst some native peoples of the Americas that could relate to the Clovis. But the half-life of oral traditions is usually much shorter than 13,000 years. The oldest oral tradition that we are aware of is that of the Aboriginal people of Australia, which could potentially go back as far as 7,000 years. But that's a controversial claim and still falls far short when it comes to any possible oral traditions about the Clovis. Because there are few incontestable facts, archaeologists have long debated everything about the Clovis. Specifically, who they were, where they came from, and crucially, whether they were the first people to reach the Americas. Or for a time, whether they existed at all. For a long span of American history, it was considered impossible for America to have been peopled earlier than one or two thousand years before the Common Era. So let's start not from the beginning of the Clovis people's story, but from some of the first theories of the origins of the Native Americans. Before 1492, basically every explorer who ventured as far as the Americas claims to have discovered the two new continents. The last one who could lay claim to that discovery was Christopher Columbus, and he didn't even acknowledge the accomplishment. He believed until his dying day that he had sailed to India, not to the Americas. So when Columbus came to America, he believed that the indigenous people he met were Indians from India. That epithet stuck around for centuries, even after people realized that the indigenous Americans were not Indian at all. The question then became, who were they? How had they arrived in the Americas, and when, and why? Had they always been here? Based on a cursory look back at the records of multiple, quote-unquote, discoverings of the Americas, the answer to that final question appeared to be yes. Norse adventurers, led by Leif Erikson, landed in Greenland and Canada in the 1000s, around 500 years before Columbus set sail for the New World. The sagas describe Erikson and his companions as fighting against the indigenous Skraelings once they landed. Skraeling basically just means outsider, as in non-Norse or uncivilized. Like the Greek word barbarian, it's something of a catch-all term. So that takes us back a thousand years and establishes that every culture that came to the Americas likely met with an indigenous population. After Columbus's voyages during the Spanish conquest, the Europeans came up with a theory. A few different books published in the 1650s posited that the Native Americans may have been descended from one of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. After the Assyrians conquered the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, the 12 tribes, made up of the descendants of the biblical Jacob, were exiled from their home. The southern kingdom of Judah was eventually restored and its inhabitants allowed to re-enter. But the majority of the inhabitants of the kingdom of Israel, made up of 10 of the 12 tribes, were not among them and were unable to return home. There are people around the globe who have claimed to be descended from these lost tribes, including Bene Israel, Bene Menasha of India, Beta Israel of Ethiopia, the Igbo Jews of Nigeria, and the Pashtuns of Afghanistan. It seemed to fit then that one of these lost tribes must have come over to the Americas by boat after the destruction of their homeland. How else could they explain how this land became peopled? But more importantly, how else could the Spanish missionaries have convinced Native Americans that Christianity was relevant to them? 
Mormonism is even in part founded on this assumption that there were two tribes that had escaped by boat and come to the Americas, and that one of these tribes became the Native Americans. The original expulsion of the ten tribes from Israel into Assyria had happened in 722 BCE. That would mean that the Native Americans could only have been on the continent for about 2,200 years before Columbus came sailing in. That fit the narrative that European colonizers wanted to spread, namely, that anything sufficiently advanced in Native American culture or society could be explained away by saying it was a holdover from their civilized days back in the Old World. So this theory that the Native Americans were descended from some of the lost tribes of Israel gained ground with the European colonizers. But the Native Americans themselves disagreed. Many cultures don't believe that there was ever a moment of arrival. Several creation stories throughout different Native American traditions put forth the idea that Native people have always been on the continents. We'd get into more specifics, but the diversity of the tribes and their traditions means there's no single creation story we can use as an example. Their ancestors were created in these lands, so they are truly indigenous to them. Some people believe that to this day. There have been Native American activists who insist that Western sciences, including the theory of evolution, carbon dating, and DNA testing, are deliberately discrediting and erasing their cultural heritage through scientific racism. That distrust formed the backbone of the Native American branch of the creationist movement in America. But not all Native traditions hold to the idea that the Native people have always been in the continents. In Arizona, for example, the Hopis say that they are descended from people who crossed an ocean heading east for a new land. In Montana, the Blackfoot have stories about their creator taking them up through ice and helping them to walk across into a new land. The story goes on to say that not everyone was able to cross. There was a point where the ice withdrew and separated people on two different sides. Intriguing stories, though they don't fit with the European-American narrative. The Blackfoot walked to the Americas across the ice? Well, as far as the European-Americans of that time knew, there wasn't a way to do that. The American continents were completely disconnected from Afro-Eurasia. The Hopi idea of crossing an ocean made sense, but they wouldn't have been heading east if they were coming from the old Assyrian Empire. They would have had to sail west through the Atlantic and walk all the way to Arizona. So for the most part, the Europeans ignored these ideas and continued to believe that the Americas had only been inhabited since 722 BCE, at the very earliest. It worked for the story they wanted to tell. The settlers weren't just converting and subjugating communities with long and varied traditions. They were bringing them back into the fold of European civilization. And for over 250 years, that was perhaps the prevailing belief about the origins of the Native Americans in the Americas. That is, until a ranch foreman discovered something incredible after a rainstorm. In 1908, George McJunkin was working to repair a fence that had fallen around the Wild Horse Arroyo near Folsom, New Mexico. Recent torrential rains had changed the landscape a bit, though, and uncovered some large bones that had been buried deep. McJunkin had been working on ranches for the better part of a decade. He knew what bison looked like after they had decomposed, and he knew they didn't look like this. These bones were much too big to belong to any modern-day bison. That, combined with how deep the bones had been buried, helped McJunkin realize that these bones couldn't have been recent. It's unclear if McJunkin believed that these were the ancestors of the modern bison, or if he just believed it was an extinct cousin of the bison. After all, Charles Darwin's On the Origins of Species had come out less than 50 years earlier, and the theory of evolution as we know it today wasn't always taught throughout the United States. McJunkin tried to get a number of archaeologists interested in his findings over the next few years, but McJunkin was a black man, a former slave, and mostly self-taught, so most of those archaeologists shrugged him off. Instead, he got his boss's son to occasionally help him dig when they had time off from their duties at the ranch. By 1918, 
McJunkin had unearthed more of these ancient bison bones. He also discovered what would come to be known as Folsom Points, a distinctive type of carved, lance-shaped projectile points. Presumably, they were used for hunting since they'd been discovered alongside bison bones. But as McJunkin had suspected, these bones weren't those of a normal bison. When archaeologists eventually deigned to look over the bones, they quickly realized that they were from Bison Antiquus, which hadn't been seen since the end of the last Ice Age. We know now that Bison Antiquus has been extinct for about 10,000 years. But if people had only been in the Americas for a few thousand years, how could a human tool be found alongside such an ancient carcass? McJunkin died in 1922 before he could know the answer for sure. But some of McJunkin's collection of bones made it to archaeologist Jesse Figgins at the Colorado Museum of Natural History. He paid for a dig in the Wild Horse Arroyo in 1926, hoping to get a full Bison Antiquus skeleton for the museum's collection. In 1927, Figgins' team uncovered a projectile point, just like the ones McJunkin had found, only this time, it was nestled in between two bison ribs. It was definitive proof that these man-made projectile points had been connected to the deaths of these ancient bison. All of a sudden, America's assumptions about its own native population was turned on its head. There was no way that they were a lost tribe of Israel. These people had been in the Americas for at least 7,000 years by the time Assyrians kicked the tribes out from Israel. Who were these people? How had they possibly gotten here? What else did we misunderstand or get wrong about the nature of the first people in the continent? And it would only be a couple more years before another wrench was thrown into our understanding of these earliest Americans. A set of even older projectile points found at a site over 200 miles south of the Wild Horse Arroyo near Clovis, New Mexico. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now our story continues. The year was 1929. 19-year-old James Ridgely Whiteman had heard of the Folsom points that had been found in his home state of New Mexico just a few short years ago, and he was interested in exploring his own area. Maybe he, too, could find parts of ancient hunting weapons. That area was the Blackwater Draw, a few miles away from Clovis, New Mexico. James wanted to see what he could find, and as it turned out, he was able to find quite a bit. It didn't surprise him. Locals had been finding and collecting points and bones for ages, but no one else had seemed to piece together that they might be prehistoric. James wrote to the Smithsonian in early 1929, detailing some of his discoveries in the hopes that there could be a dig authorized in the Blackwater Draw. He wrote about finding warheads and extinct elephant bones 
capturing the attention of the Smithsonian's paleontologists. They sent Charles Gilmore to Clovis that spring. James showed Gilmore the warheads he found and took him all around the site. There were some bison bones and a few small pieces of mammoth, but none of the warheads that James had described in his letter. Gilmore, after an hour, shrugged and said that the site probably didn't contain enough to make a dig worth the Smithsonian's time, and he continued on his way. But James didn't give up. He had found some interesting and beautiful artifacts, including some projectile points, though James had called them warheads. James knew that there was more to discover in the Blackwater draw. After several years of struggling for attention, James managed to convince someone else. In 1932, he met Edgar B. Howard, a researcher and archaeologist with the University of Pennsylvania who was on another dig nearby. He showed Howard the projectile points he had found, along with some of the bones he had collected, and Howard became intrigued. He began to plan a dig in the Blackwater draw to begin the next year. But Howard's timeline got a little sped up when, in September, a road crew accidentally dug up some mammoth bones. He ran to the new site before locals could snatch away all of the enormous elephantine fossils. Mixed in with the mammoth remains were more of the distinctive projectile points that James had shown him. They were lance-shaped, like the Folsom points, but much thinner and longer. They were about four inches long, made of stone like jasper or obsidian, with some distinctive fluting on the bottom and carefully carved ridges on the sides. There were some similarities to the Folsom points, yes, but these seemed to actually be an entirely different kind of point. Which meant that these hunting tools had likely belonged to an entirely different people, people who had perhaps arrived in the Americas even earlier. This was confirmed through additional digs reaching into 1937. It's hard to accurately date stonework, but based on the animal bones that these points have been found beside and embedded in, these Clovis people, as they've come to be called, must have been in the Americas as early as about 13,500 years ago. In March of 1937, Howard put together an exhibit at the Academy for Natural Sciences for an interdisciplinary symposium about the state of early humanity. Anthony T. Boldurian relates the effect of the exhibit in his book, Clovis Revisited. Quote, Created especially for the symposium was a hall of early man, the centerpiece of which was a recreation of the 1936 Mammoth Pit. Presented as an open exhibit on the first floor in the Academy's main hall were the actual bones and associated artifacts from the Blackwater Draw, exactly as they had appeared upon excavation. An impressive display, the Mammoth Pit caught favorable attention from the many delegates as well as the general public." End quote. So that was the world's introduction to the Clovis people. Through a careful reconstruction of the dig site in New Mexico, where they'd been found. And that became the new narrative. The Clovis people were, to the best of anyone's knowledge, the earliest Americans. Since James Ridgely Whiteman's 1929 letter to the Smithsonian, we've come to realize just how much of a culture there was. The Blackwater dig site remains active, even nearly 90 years later. And the Clovis weren't just in New Mexico. The proliferation of their points and other tools across the continents at over 1,000 sites throughout North, Central, and even South America means that the Clovis people were an enormous culture. We're still discovering new Clovis points and Clovis sites today. So how did they get here? Who were they? And were they truly the first people here? Are they truly the ancestors of indigenous Americans? Now that we have a good understanding of how we came to know about the Clovis in modern times, let's go back and reconstruct their journey to the Americas. It's been an ongoing and evolving tale as scientists of all backgrounds have worked together to piece together the most believable version of the story. Right now, this is our best understanding of the data available to us. It's a story that begins at the dawn of humankind. 
The earliest parts of this tale are known mostly from genetics, and the details are still hazy. Modern humans, Homo sapiens, began to leave Africa starting around 70,000 to 50,000 years ago. Each group had knowledge of language, fire, and efficient hunting and gathering techniques that would allow them to adapt to local conditions. But the migration did not happen all at once. Humans left in large waves, settling and resettling, migrating and back-migrating. Homo sapiens mingled and exchanged genes with at least two and possibly more different hominids. These hominids had evolved from Homo erectus, a common ancestor that had left Africa about two million years earlier than Homo sapiens had. These hominids included Neanderthals and, in some regions, Denisovans. Everyone whose ancestors left Africa in these migrations has a small percentage of Neanderthal blood. Human heritage is complicated, messy, and beautiful, isn't it? The ancestors of the indigenous Australians were among the first waves of -of out-of-Africa migrants. In their search for new homes, they reached India, the Andaman Islands, and even remote New Guinea, Australia, and Tasmania about 65,000 years ago. Later waves of migrants would see them pushed out of some of these areas, but their descendants are still present in many of these regions today. These early migrants to Oceania would have needed to know how to build boats and sail them across the water to find new land. There's evidence that some of Southeast Asia was connected as one continent, but Australia and most of Oceania would have been islands. Is it possible then that some of these seafaring people were able to go even further through the Pacific Ocean? Perhaps they could have sailed as far as the Americas. It would match up with that story from the Hopi, where they sailed eastward across the ocean to a new land. But the Clovis didn't originate from that initial migration towards Australia. According to genetic studies, the ancient ancestors of the Clovis people probably came from people who settled in the steppes of Central Asia in a later migration. They were big game hunters, meaning they survived by tracking and killing large animals and making efficient use of the resources gleaned from them. The big game that shared this region co-evolved with humans for an extended period of time, so the animals adapted gradually to human hunting tactics. That means they proved more challenging to hunt, and because of that, were generally not hunted to extinction during this time. The same cannot be said for animals that didn't co-evolve with humans, like those in the Americas. Eventually, one group of these big-game hunters branched off and headed north into Siberia. They wandered the landscape, following the herds. It's important to note that right after the discovery of the first of those distinctive Clovis points in 1937, archaeologist Edgar B. Howard scouted Siberia to see if there were any similar or related projectile points to be found there. He believed that there was a connection between the Siberian people and the Native Americans and wanted to prove it through the Clovis points. But there wasn't anything resembling a Clovis point in Siberia from that time. That means that either the Clovis point is a uniquely American invention, possibly even the first human invention in the Americas, or it didn't come from these people at all. Perhaps the people who made those points were linked to a different migratory wave, a different ancestry. But that's a theory for another time. Of the people who migrated from the steppes of Central Asia into Siberia, some of them chose to stay in this new land with the herds. Others, direct ancestors of the Clovis, known sometimes as the Proto-Clovis, pushed boldly into Beringia around 40,000 to 25,000 years ago. Today's Bering Strait is a hazardous passage, and if it had been a body of water in prehistory too, ancient people would have had difficulty crossing it, even with the boats that the migrants used to cross into Australia. But there have been many times in Earth's history where water levels were much lower than they are today. We call them ice ages, times of great hardship for living things when the temperature of the Earth drops precipitously and massive glacial ice sheets descend inward from both poles. As the glaciers grew, the oceans of the world shrank, Water that would usually be in the oceans was instead tied up in these huge ice sheets. 
These were at their largest during the last glacial maximum, from about 26,500 to 20,000 years before present. A quick note, the term before present denotes a specific moment in time. It is measured backwards from January 1st, 1950. Because the present shifts forward every year, scientists use this timescale mainly to refer to events that we can date through radiocarbon half-lives. And the last glacial maximum definitely counts as one of those events. As the glaciers and ice sheets held onto vast amounts of water from the world's oceans, the water level dropped. Sometimes it dropped so low that land would emerge from under the depths. There was a time where Great Britain wasn't an island, for example. It was a peninsula attached to mainland Europe through a temporary land bridge created by low sea levels. The same process produced the land bridge of Beringia connecting Russia and Alaska. Beringia has existed at various times during various ice ages and glacial maxima, but the most recent time would have been between 30,000 and 10,000 years before present. Ancient peoples would not have needed boats at all. Under the right conditions, they could simply walk across. Sounds a little bit like that Blackfoot legend, doesn't it? Walking across the ice to a new land. Now, when we say land bridge, you might be thinking of a thin strip of land, one as wide as something like the Golden Gate Bridge. But what we actually mean is something closer to the size of a country. At its widest point, Beringia was probably more than 620 miles wide, north to south. That's nearly as wide as the state of Texas. Beringia, however, was not necessarily hospitable. Since it's so close to the North Pole, much of Beringia's existence was spent under those ice sheets, making it very difficult, if not impossible, to cross or inhabit. But about 17,000 years ago, most of the ice that made the interior of Beringia so impassable began to melt. Plants and animals started to cross over into Beringia and make it their home. So did people. Not everyone entered Beringia looking to cross it, but simply settled down there, with their ancestors staying put until the rising seas forced them out about 2,000 years later. At the easternmost part of Beringia, now modern-day Alaska, the advance of the Proto-Clovis was stopped by two great glaciers, one that blocked the way to the south, and the other fencing them in on the east and north. So for thousands of years, the Proto-Clovis people hunted and lived in Siberia, Beringia, and Alaska. We believe this because genetically, today's Native Americans shared common ancestry with today's Siberians through the Malta people who were an indigenous group found in Siberia. The situation changed dramatically as the Ice Age began to end. The glaciers fencing them in on the east remained impassable. But by 15,000 years before present, the sea level rose enough to submerge Beringia. It was not a sudden event. The mental image of a tsunami is tempting, but inaccurate. Gradually, the land bridge got thinner and thinner, and over generations, people slowly migrated to higher ground. The water eventually rose enough that the bridge would be submerged at high tide. And then finally, the Clovis watched it vanish behind them. The ancestors of the Malta were on the Siberian side and the Clovis on the Alaskan side. The two groups would now follow separate destinies. Again, it sounds a little bit like the Blackfoot story, the ice gave way to two lands. Some made it across, and some didn't. For 2,000 years, the Clovis remained bottled up in Alaska by the sea on their west and the glaciers on their east. Finally, 13,500 years before present, the dam burst. As the glaciers finally retreated, an inland route opened up, connecting Alaska with the Great Plains of what is now Canada and the United States. Some of the earliest known Clovis sites are in the central United States, or even as far east as modern Pittsburgh. Now that seems surprising if you picture people migrating south from Alaska, but it's because the Clovis did not come down the coast. They walked through an open gate right into the heartland. 
Because of an enormous glacier, the Pacific coast was impassable to the Clovis, who probably did not have much expertise building ships. But a Pacific migration route was technically possible. Seafaring explorers hugging the coast could have occasionally found refugia or safe harbors where there was no ice. Setting up settlements in these refugia, their descendants could have then continued to explore further down the coast. It's almost impossible for us to know whether anyone attempted this because the ancient coastline is now far underwater with today's higher sea levels. But if anyone had tried a coastal migration route, they theoretically could have beaten the Clovis to South America by thousands of years. Whether they were first or not, the Clovis were the most successful settlers of the Americas. As we mentioned before, we find Clovis spearheads in archaeological sites across all of the Americas, as far south as the tip of Argentina. Though all Clovis clans shared a spearhead style and material culture at first, the societies the Clovis built were not unified. They did not come to the Americas and found a single country. Like hunter-gatherer people across the world, they probably organized themselves into semi-nomadic local communities like clans based around large extended families. Each of these communities would have competed with and fought with their nearest neighbors, but they also traded extensively with one another. Unlike the situation in Asia, Europe, and Africa, the inhabitants of the Americas all shared a common culture, but each community likely operated independently and pursued its own best interests. By 13,000 years before present, the Clovis had spread to every corner of their new home. The big game they hunted was plentiful and unused to the advanced hunting techniques of their new human predators. They were easy prey. The environment the Clovis encountered would be almost unrecognizable to modern Americans. None of its native crops had been domesticated yet. No European or Asian domesticated animals or invasive plants had yet made the trip across the Atlantic. And strangest of all, the lands featured herds of large roaming animals so unfamiliar to us that they would look more at home in a Star Wars movie than in the Kansas prairie. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now let's continue the story. By traveling to a new continent 13,500 years before the present, the Clovis people, descended from a wave of migratory big game hunters, had entered an alien landscape. This new land was populated by famous animals like saber-toothed tigers, mastodons, and woolly mammoths, as well as unfamiliar ones like western camels, short-faced bears, and giant tortoises. The Clovis hunted giant ground sloths, and when we say giant, we mean giant. 18 feet long, 17 feet tall, and weighing five tons. They were as large as elephants. They would lean against trees and eat the leaves off of their branches like a giraffe. They also ate brush and shrubbery. Like other sloths, they were slow and unable to escape human hunters. The Clovis also encountered the armored Glyptotherium, or giant armadillo. It was six feet long, with a shell weighing up to a ton. If they attempted to hunt this creature, they had their work cut out for them. There were the noto ungulata, which are difficult to describe without using pictures because they don't really resemble anything alive today. As ungulates, they are hooved animals looking somewhat like a hornless rhinoceros. And that was just North America. South America had giant vampire bats and didicurus, an armadillo with a spiked mace tail, superficially resembling an ankylosaur. South America may have also been home to terror birds prior to the arrival of humans. Terror birds were eight-foot-tall, predatory, flightless birds. Think of a velociraptor from Jurassic Park, but bigger and covered in feathers. Though most terror birds went extinct well before humans arrived, there is some evidence that some may have lasted until around the time we appeared. Perhaps strangest of all the American megafauna to modern listeners would be the North American calicothere. This was also an ungulate, but unlike all other hooved animals, it walks on its knuckles, with its front legs being much taller than its back legs. Imagine a horse head, 
on a gorilla's body. The Clovis must have been delighted at the sight of all of these big, slow creatures, especially knowing that they had never come across human predators before. And the Clovis were especially proficient hunters. As we mentioned before, the Clovis people are best known for crafting the Clovis points, highly advanced spearheads. They carved the spearheads by chipping stones against other stones to make their shapes. The shapes themselves featured a notch in the back end known as fluting. The exact function of the fluting is debated. It may have helped mount the head onto spears. There's also some evidence that it acted as a kind of shock absorber, redistributing the impact. A Clovis hunter could spear a mammoth hard enough that the spearhead impacted bone and still reuse the spear. This innovation is unique to the Clovis, having been absent from all of their predecessors and contributed to their success across the Americas. Another piece of technology the Clovis developed for hunting was the atlatl, or spear thrower. It was a notched stick in which the hunter would mount a spear. When they wound up an atlatl and threw the spear in it, they launched the spears with more force than a human arm could alone. If you've seen people play a high ally, it's the same idea, except the hystera throws balls instead of spears. We've described the Clovis as big game hunters because that is the consensus view. But there are some academics who question this, or who at least think we're overstating its importance to the Clovis way of life. According to David Meltzer, the author of First Peoples in a New World, the Clovis also hunted small animals, fished, and got most of their sustenance from foraging for plants. As best we can tell, they probably lived in temporary dwellings known as brush shelters. These shelters were sturdy but simple, and they were relatively easy to set up and take down. We see them in many other cultures that followed the Clovis, so it's possible that the original structure came down from the Clovis culture. Unlike their tools, the shelters of the Clovis people would have been made to be easily taken apart or left behind when migrating somewhere new. These shelters likely consisted of brush, mud, rocks, and the hides of the various megafauna that the Clovis hunted. Dozens of species of large animals went extinct around 13,000 years ago in the Americas. Before humans arrived, there were 132 large mammal species on the two continents. Within a couple thousand years, there were just 24 species left. That is a fact. What's not fully settled is the question of why. A leading theory is that the Clovis were largely, or at least partially, responsible. This conclusion is considered problematic for some political and social reasons. Some Native American activists, understandably, do not want to believe their ancestors could be this short-sighted. It is also a problematic idea for European Americans interested in cultivating the myth of the pre-Columbian noble savage. The noble savage narrative of Native people living in perfect harmony with nature is a pervasive fetishization of Native American cultures. It serves various political narratives, some well-intentioned and some not. The idea that the Clovis did not live in total harmony with nature undermines these narratives. It is true that some of the Native cultures that succeeded the Clovis did achieve some equilibrium with their environments, but the Clovis themselves seem to have had a worse track record. Researchers trying to debunk the theory that the Clovis wiped out the large American animals often point out that the extinction also coincided with the end of an ice age and a noticeable climatic shift. Maybe the changing environment contributed to their extinction. But that raises some questions. Why did only megafauna, the exact group the Clovis hunted, go extinct? Why not mice, birds, or foxes? Why not trees, plants, mushrooms, or algae? All of these things should have been affected if the environment experienced an ecosystem-wide disruption. In Eurasia and Africa, where humans had spread more gradually and human hunting techniques had developed over longer timescales, the extinctions were more modest. But in the Americas, entire families of species were wiped out forever. If the extinctions were due to global, natural climate change, why were they worst in the areas that were more suddenly disrupted by humans? 
Most of the American megafauna species that survived the extinction event had descended from animals that had originated in Asia, where they coexisted and coevolved with humans. If humans did not cause the extinctions, then why is there a selection bias in the species that survived? And if the extinction was natural and climate-caused, why did it happen now? Yes, an ice age was ending, but all of these species had each already survived dozens or hundreds of ice ages. There was nothing unique about this one, except the presence of humans. In some cases, humans might have been indirectly rather than directly responsible. Some of the carnivores, such as the dire wolves, may not have gone extinct because humans hunted them, but because humans killed off all their prey. We ultimately have no direct causal proof one way or another, which is why the question continues to get asked. But the fact is that the arrival of the Clovis coincided with the disappearance of many large animals. That coincidence is too big to simply ignore. But to be fair to the Clovis, the mass extinction they may have contributed to took a thousand years. The mass extinction we're living through now sees countless species wiped out every year. Modern industry and pollution is more dangerous than arrowheads. As we consider the impact of the arrival of people in the Americas, the history of the horse leaps out as particularly fascinating and tragic. The ancestors of horses were native to the Americas. Modern horses are descended from early horses that migrated before the Clovis across Beringia, going in the other direction, from the Americas to Asia. Much later, the modern horse was first domesticated in Central Asia. But many of the early horses remained behind in the Americas. As they did not co-evolve with humans, they were as unprepared for the Clovis as any other megafauna. They were hunted to extinction, or otherwise died out with the rest of the large animals. In the 15th century, when European explorers arrived in the Americas, they brought horses with them and reintroduced the animals to the continent where they had originated. When we think of the Native American cultures of the plains, we often think of their horse culture, similar to that of the people of the Central Asian steppes. It's strange to remember that this is a post-Columbian development of their cultures. It's also strange to look at packs of wild mustangs and remember that they're all descended from domesticated animals that got loose, except now they no longer have any natural predators. It is stranger still to think that this huge change, the reintroduction of the horse, was actually in some ways a reversion to the way things used to be when wild horses roamed the Americas, free. Whether they were responsible for the extinctions or not, the Clovis paid a price for them. As a big game hunting culture, they could not maintain the same way of life without the existence of big game. In the end, they outcompeted themselves. They were too successful to last. Within a thousand years, everything had changed. Around 12,900 years before present, the world cooled down again for a little over a thousand years. This cold period, known as the Younger Dryas, corresponds with the end of the Clovis culture. Perhaps due to the rapidly shifting environments throughout the Americas, localized culture branched off from the Clovis and developed on their own, forced by necessity to become specialized to their local environments. The Folsom tradition was one of these localized cultures, but there are at least six that archaeologists believe to be direct descendants of the Clovis. By the start of the Younger Dryas, the Clovis were no more but their progeny would come to rule two continents for more than 10,000 years. And that was the prevailing theory about the ancestry of the Native Americans for a long time. In the last few decades, though, some doubt has crept into this narrative. We know that the ancestors of the Native Americans came from Siberia, and we have long assumed that these people came via the Beringian land bridge. But some of the dates simply don't line up. We know the ice sheets retreated, allowing the inland passage about 13,500 years ago. But there are confirmed ruins of human settlements that reach back thousands of years before the Clovis ever came to America. These dates were confirmed by the scientific community as early as the 1990s. How is that possible? Some of these settlements have a different material culture from the Clovis, and some are found as far south as the extreme tip of Chile. 
How could they possibly have gotten there so early? Could we have, again, misunderstood the nature of the first Americans? What more do we have to learn? Some theories have since appeared to explain pre-Clovis settlements. For example, the 1999 Salutrian hypothesis was the idea that the Salutrian people, who lived in France 17,000 years ago, crossed the Atlantic and settled the Americas. Also controversial are the alleged discoveries of fire circles and human habitation as old as 40,000 years ago, many millennia before the arrival of the Clovis. Many of these sites were first discovered in the 1970s, but much of the original dating hasn't been considered reliable. Could this be true? If humans were present in the Americas as early as 40,000 years ago, why didn't the megafauna go extinct until the Clovis arrived? And why do we so rarely find human remains at these Clovis sites? Where are they? What happened to them? What makes us believe that they are, in fact, the ancestors of today's Native Americans? If you're looking for more unexplained mysteries, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Dana Shaw and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 